Singing like that makes me want heaven right now. I can't wait, you know? It's going to be great. Pardon? You can have it? Oh, Mr. Eschatology over here. We're going to get into the end times in a couple of weeks. So we'll be spending a lot of time talking about the end times. But for now, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to fix our attention on verses 29 to 36. Sorry, Nicole. 29 to 36. Matthew chapter 23. Verses 29 to 36. And if you are ready, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As you know, we've been working through the book of Job in our Wednesday night Bible study, Cheap Plug. And one of the great lessons that we have learned throughout the book of Job is just how valuable and just how important a tested and genuine faith is. See, at the beginning of the book, Job, the righteous man, lived in the lap of luxury, enjoying much earthly wealth, much abundance in the form of, as Job 1 verse 3 puts it, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. And in that bountiful affluence, Job is described in chapter 1, verse 1, as blameless and upright, as one who feared God and turned away from evil. But the question one might ask of someone like Job is, how could Job, or how could we know, if the faith that Job possessed in the Lord, if his righteous living was born out of and carried upon the wings of his riches and his prosperity, or whether he truly loved the Lord for the Lord's own sake. Did he love the Lord because he had 3,000 sheep? Or did he love the Lord because the Lord is precious and awesome and worthy to be adored and delighted in? Did Job love the Lord because he had been blessed with such abundance and provision and ease and security? 
How could Job know? He can know by facing and enduring the trial that he faced and endured. A trial where every single one of his earthly blessings was removed from him. They were all taken from him, and yet, even in so despairing a situation, Job could cling to the Lord as his greatest and most precious good. And the book of Job actually describes this very trial brought to bear in Job's life. It recounts the season when every earthly good in Job's life was taken from him and through it all, even in the darkest moments. While emotionally wrecked by the turmoil and crushed under the weight of the burden and wondering why it was that he must experience such grave and painful affliction from the hand of the Lord, after all of it, he bore up under it. He persevered through it, and in the end, after the distress and after the misery had all run its course, after Job's faith had been sufficiently tested, sufficiently evaluated, sufficiently appraised, Job 42.10 tells us, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and gave Job twice as much as he had before. And now think about this for a second. On this side of the trial now, Job could enjoy not only the abundance of earthly riches and possessions that had been given to him by the Lord, but he could enjoy those riches and enjoy those blessings as one who now knew for certain that should he lose everything, he would still cling to the Lord. He now knew that if his possessions were all plundered and his body racked with torment and with anguish and with immeasurable pain, he would not do what Satan said he would do under such circumstances. He would not curse his God to his face. Instead, Job's trials, the loss of his wealth, the death of his loved ones, along with the continual insults and foolishness of his so-called friends who had come at the beginning to comfort him, but who ended up only increasing his suffering, all of, them, all of this produced in Job what the Apostle Peter encouraged the recipients of his first letter with when he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now for a little while you are grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This tested genuineness of faith, wrote Peter, if you heard it, is more precious than the purest gold the world has to offer. When faith is tested, when you are tested that's when the real you, that's when the real me shines forth for everyone to see. And this is one of the most important lessons that I've learned in my own personal life and throughout my years of ministry. As I've seen many people come and go and as I've heard people profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ only to then walk away from that profession at some point in their life, as people turn from kind and gentle one moment to angry, bitter, and hostile in the next moment, I've thought and learned that we cannot truly assess a person's maturity. We cannot truly assess the strength of a person's faith and sometimes even their very salvation until we see how they respond in testing and in trial. 
Nice. That guy sounds like a good preacher. <laughs> Until we see how they respond when things do not go their way or when they don't get what they want, what they think they deserve, or what they think they are entitled to. Another pastor that I recently heard put it this way, quote, In all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person, end quote. And the truth of this statement is only getting clearer and more apparent, especially seeing that we, all of us, are being raised in and conditioned by a culture that assumes what the Harvey's Burger food chain states explicitly in their tagline. You get your burger your way. We live in and are being shaped by a society that feeds into our worst fleshly weakness, that of our bent towards self-idolatry. And Harvey's is not alone in their efforts to try and ascribe to you and I or to bring us to the place where we promote, at least in our own minds, some degree of self-deification, exalting ourselves as our highest authority, exalting ourselves to the seat of supremacy, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of everyone around us. Everywhere you and I are turned, you and I are being told to indulge and to satisfy and to gratify and to fulfill and to quench and to appease our own preferences and impulses and cravings. And over time, if we aren't vigilantly guarding, if we aren't on the lookout for, if we aren't alert to and defending against these relentless and persistent messages of you are your own God, we can and often do buy into the idea. And while you and I might not actually use those words, right? None of us, I think, are foolish enough or that arrogant that we would walk around in our minds saying, you know what, I am my own God. We can definitely act like it. We could definitely begin assuming that everyone around us ought to think of ourselves the way we think of ourselves. They ought to believe the way we believe. After all, our thoughts and opinions are superior to everyone else's, right? That's why we hold them. And as such self-idolatrous thoughts increase, we can see it to the degree that we think others ought to pander to us, to cater to us, to comply with our wishes, as though we surpass everyone around us in preeminence and genius. And everyone around us who isn't a fool should simply consent to and conform to our elevated thoughts and ideas and priorities. That we, in some sense, ought to be given preferential treatment over some other people. And when that happens, when this idol of self is appeased, when we are getting our way, when we are getting the deference we think we deserve, when we are getting the respect we believe is due us, it's easy to act the part of the Christian. When things are going as we would have them go, when people defer and comply, all is well. And that's the way it went with the scribes and Pharisees. As people gave them the respect they thought they deserved, they treated those people 
accordingly and appropriately. But what about when the Lord does not give or provide us with what we think we need? What about when we aren't given the role and the respect and the obedience and the consideration and the veneration that we think we deserve or that we think we are owed? What happens when those around you don't agree with you? When they don't hold to your particular viewpoints regarding how things ought to be done with the same intensity and vigor with which you hold them? What about when those around you choose to take or to respect somebody else's suggestions and insights over your own? What happens when the idol of self is challenged? Because it's then when you see the heart of a person. It's then when you see someone for who and what they are. And over the years, I've seen this play out many, 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 many times. One that sticks out to me occurred many, 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 many moons ago as one day a congregant came up to me and sternly warned me, if you don't use the organ in the worship service, I will be leaving this church. Which to me sounded like, if you don't do things the way I like them to be done, I will be taking my ball and going home. Or, I will stir up trouble and division among the congregation, whichever one of them my own flesh in that moment is inclined to. Moments like these are what reveal our maturity or lack thereof. So how do you respond when you don't receive the acclamation, the applause, the respect the admiration, the thanks you feel you deserve or that you feel you are entitled to? How do you respond when your self-importance isn't fed into or is even worse, challenged? How do you respond when you do not get what you want? When things don't fall out the way that you would like them to? How do you respond when the finger of rebuke and exhortation is pointed in your chest? I mean, isn't it easy for us to sit and listen to preachers and to listen to stories of sin and rebuke for that sin in somebody else's life? Not too many complain about those types of sermons focused on admonishing the cultural sins out there because in those types of sermons, we can easily separate ourselves, right? We can separate ourselves from the pack that is those people and place ourselves in a different category. We are the good ones. They are the bad ones. We can be far too savvy and clever in this area. You and I can all slip quite easily into the I thank you that I am not like other men type of Phariseeism that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 18. Last year, my daughter bought me the book Elmer Gantry. It's a classic novel about a hypocritical pastor. It's a fictional tale about an unsaved man who loved his sins of womanizing and other rebellions and yet got caught up in the world of big tent revival preaching. He possessed a larger-than-life personality and and he thought that this might bring him the riches and the fame and the respect and the adoration that he thought that he sought in life. And his rise to fame as a preacher was meteoric, even as his, as his entire life revolved around his own fleshly passions. 
So on the one hand, he's womanizing in his private life, and in the other, he is preaching these unbelievable sins in the big tent revivals. And one particular section of the novel struck me as Elmer revealed the reason why he grew so popular, at least as he saw it. It's because, he he said, he knew how to preach what was called good old-time religion sermons about the sins of society. He understood that sermons like these would whip the crowds into a frenzy of self-righteousness, which only then served to increase the crowds at the next big tent revival service. And people would come from miles around to hear this man, to hear this unsaved hypocrite preach in such a way that when the sermon was done, they felt high and mighty because the sermons were so full of gossip and accounts of the sexual sins and failures of others about the sins of those wretches out there all the while leaving the people inside untouched. Oh, the good old-time religion. Elmer didn't point out the sins of the people in attendance because that would have been an offense. That might have shrunk the crowds. No, he fed into their sense of self-importance by aiding the crowds in a feeling and a sense of elevation over and above all those sinners out there. For the scribes and the Pharisees who thought oh so highly of themselves who wanted and expected a certain degree of admiration and respect from everyone around them, when they didn't receive that acclaim or applause that they thought proper for men of their brilliance and of their stature and of their standing, or when they were publicly challenged by Christ for their hypocrisy or for their sin or for their disobedience to the weightier matters of the law of God, or when they saw the crowds flock to Jesus who, unlike them, taught as one with authority, to Jesus who showed compassion to the crowds by healing them of their infirmities, who rather than adding more weight to their already burdened shoulders, sought to, re- sought to relieve them of the extra-biblical loads placed there by the Pharisees. And as the Pharisees watched Jesus getting these accolades, and the crowds going to Jesus, and as they heard the rebukes of Jesus pointed to their chest, their response was that of flashing, ferocious, and unsatisfiable anger. See, these men would have felt right at home in one of Elmer Gantry's sermons, nodding their heads and elbowing each other. Do you hear that? Do you hear this man calling out those wretches for their sin? as the preacher condemned everyone around them while leaving their sin untouched. This type of reaction, these scribes and Pharisees, the way they responded revealed to all around the internal situation, the internal reality of their hearts. It exposed the true state of their hearts as men uh, who were bitter and jealous and self-centered and proud and idolatrous. And as the supposed genuineness of their faith was tested by Christ, and as he announced for everyone to hear a number of their hypocrisies and a number of their shortcomings, their so-called faith was proven not to be genuine gold, but to be fool's gold. Not to be pure, refined, beautiful, and valuable gold like that spoken of by Peter. And Jesus has made this abundantly clear in the first six and now the seventh in a series of woes. The seventh and final woe. These scribes and Pharisees may have thought quite highly of themselves, but they were, according to Jesus, 
no different than their fathers. That word you'll see in verse 30. Fathers here means the generations of rebellious, idolatrous religious leaders in Israel who came before them. And as we enter into our text this morning, Christ is going to lay bare their self-delusions. He's going to rebuke them for their conceit, for their false conceptions, for the way that they entertain high thoughts about themselves. And he'll do this by plainly telling them that while they thought they might have been more enlightened than their ancestors, the reality is they were even more wicked than those men they thought they were better than. And notice that Jesus does it right to their face. Jesus didn't go around telling others the sins of the scribes and Pharisees. And when he did, everything he said was something that he had already said directly to them. Unlike us, who will tend to go around and say things about other people that we haven't said to them, right? Be more like Jesus here. The seventh condemnation begins in verse 29. Look at it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in, the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. Now, when you read the Old Testament, it is not hard to see whether you are reading today or whether you are a scribe and Pharisee reading 2,000 years ago, that the prophets in the Old Testament were oftentimes treated shamefully, despicably, and reprehensibly, reprehensibly by those to whom they were dispatched. The Lord actually says in the letter to the Hebrews, for example, that in chapter 11, verse 36 to 38, they suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And this reality is attested to in the Old Testament over and over again. A few examples. The prophet Elijah, as he hid in caves to escape the threats of evil queen Jezebel, who had already, according to 1 Kings 18.13, killed the prophets of the Lord. Elijah complained to the Lord while hiding, saying, I have been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The prophet Jeremiah also lamented and wept to the Lord about the treatment of the prophets in Judah, crying out in Lamentations 2, verse 20, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? And when Nehemiah led the people of Israel back to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile, he led the nation in a time of confession and called upon the people to confess that they and their ancestors, according to Nehemiah 9.26, were disobedient and rebelled against the Lord and cast His law behind His back and killed His prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to the Lord. And they committed great blasphemies. You see the role of the prophet, according to Nehemiah. 
The role of the prophet was to warn the people so that they might turn back to the Lord and be blessed with the Lord's grace and mercy and abundance. We also have recorded for us in Scripture at least two examples of this shedding the blood of the prophets. The first being Zechariah, the same Zechariah that Jesus will refer to in 23 verse 35, whose death is recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 to 22. There you read this. Then the Spirit of God clothed the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the city and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Now, think for a moment how such men might be received in our own day. See, the scribes and the Pharisees said, we, we would have welcomed them with open arms. But isn't that easy to say when those prophets are all dead? It's easy to say that when these prophets are now unable to rebuke and challenge those particular scribes and Pharisees. But they've deluded themselves thinking, we'd have told our fathers when those prophets came around, listen to them. When in reality they have, and oftentimes do, treat those who speak like this almost as harshly as they did Zechariah. The record continues. They conspired against Zechariah, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Jesus will describe it, saying in verse 35, between the sanctuary and the altar. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had showed him, but killed his son. And when Zechariah was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. And yet another tale of the murdered prophet is recorded for us in Jeremiah 26. There we read of a man named Uriah. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against the land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all his officials, heard Uriah's words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt, brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. This is how the prophets were treated. And on top of the scriptural records of prophets being put to death, Hebrew tradition also tells us about Jeremiah himself being stoned to death in Egypt, Micah being murdered by King Jehoram, and Isaiah being sawn in two upon the command of the evil king Manasseh. The prophets sent to the Lord to call his chosen people to repentance and faith were not treated kindly by those to whom they were sent, but instead they were pursued and persecuted and put to death over and over again, and this throughout Israel's entire history. Even from the very beginning, you go to the book of Exodus, right from the beginning, the Israelites had just watched the Lord's majestic and awe-inspiring power in the plagues and strikes brought against Egypt, and he led them out from enslavement in Egypt by his servant Moses. And he told them, send 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Ten, but 10 of them came back. They were cowards, and they said, we're not able to do it. 
We're not able to go up. The people in the land, they're stronger than us. But Caleb countered them saying, no, 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 we can do it. Let's go up at once and occupy it. We are able in the might and power of the Lord to go and take it. And the crowds listened to these two statements and chose to grumble against Moses and grumble against Caleb and grumble against Joshua. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And when Joshua and Caleb tried to encourage them, no, trust in the Lord. The Lord has got this. He is leading us. The people said to stone them with stones. And they were only saved because the Lord himself intervened to save them. See, these people were about to kill Moses, kill Joshua, and kill Jacob so that they might return to their enslavement in Egypt rather than believe in and have faith in the Lord and press forward in accordance to his word. And that's always what prophets have done. It's what they come to do, to call God's people forward in faith. And far too often, the people they are calling forward would rather return to their enslavement in Egypt and stone the prophets to get there unhindered. What a story. One that spanned multiple centuries, multiple generations, multiple eras in Israel's history. Every generation of Israel's leaders sought to kill the prophets that were sent to them. And yet, here we find these scribes and these Pharisees declaring themselves to be different. We wouldn't have done what they did. If we had lived then, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have done any of those dastardly deeds. Such a high and mighty estimation of themselves. But here's the point Jesus is making. You, scribes and Pharisees, are exactly the same. You're even worse because what you are about to, you are about to do the very same thing that every generation before you has done. You are about to shed the blood, not just of a prophet, but the blood of the prophet to whom all other prophets pointed. You are about to shed the blood of one greater than a prophet, you are about to conspire against and shed the blood of the very Messiah himself. You are about to shed the blood of God who has come to you in the flesh. You are about to, as he said in verse 31, or you are about to reveal yourselves as the sons of those who murdered the prophets. You are about to, verse 32, fill up the measure of your fathers. You are about to bear witness against yourselves that when you are tested... You are anything but the gold that you think you are. But you are instead vile serpents, a brood of vipers, sentenced to the fires of hell itself. So why were they so furiously opposed to Jesus? It's because he showed them their own reflection. He held up for them a metaphorical mirror in which their true selves were reflected back to themselves. They were made evident to themselves and to the crowds around them. And for this reason, they sought to end his life. Don't we often act quite similarly when the mirror of our own imperfections is held up to our face? The word of Jeremiah to those in his day perfectly suit and speak to and describe the very generations of scribes and Pharisees that Jesus spoke to. Listen, because this particular woe is almost a recap or a word-for-word -word, um, 
word for word of this particular situation he finds himself in with these scribes and Pharisees. Jeremiah 7, 25-29. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I, the Lord, have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, which Jesus will do in verse 37 when he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. So the exiled generation back in Jeremiah's day is now repeated again in this generation of scribes and Pharisees. A rejected and forsaken generation stood before Jesus on this day. These were men who didn't listen, who stiffened their necks, who were worse than their fathers, and who considered themselves greater and holier than previous generations. These scribes and Pharisees lied to themselves in the most soul-damning way. And if we are honest, we can, like the scribes and Pharisees, think of ourselves just like they did. I mean, listen, you are fed, depending on the radio stations and the sermons and things that you hear, you are fed a steady diet of this type of stuff. How many times have you heard or listened to a sermon or read a devotional that places you in the position of the hero in the biblical story? One of the most egregious and often repeated examples of this is the David and Goliath event. How often do you hear stories about you being David? You are the one who should go and pick up your five smooth stones and slay the Goliaths who line up against you in your life. How many times have you been told you should be a Daniel? Stand alone, make known your allegiance to the Lord, face the giants and stand tall even if you are tossed into a lion's den and into the fiery furnace. How many of us maybe have thought to ourselves, if I was put in the same situation as Adam and Eve, I would have done it differently. How many of us look at the failures and the sins and the shortcomings of those around us and think, I would never, I would never do that. Even as the scriptures tell us in no uncertain terms, let anyone who thinks they stand take heed lest he fall. How many of us denounce the sins and the shortcomings of those around us only to do the same things in our lives as we are denouncing the people around us? doing the same things away from the prying eyes of others? How many of us condemn others as we commit even worse sins in our own private darkness? Here's what we need to know about ourselves. Here's what you need to know about yourself. In your own strength, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from faith, salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not David. You wouldn't be David crying out, and this is one of my all-time favorite lines in Scripture, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? We like to think that that's who we would be in the story. You wouldn't be. 
We would best be described as the Israelites who, when they heard the threats of Goliath, were dismayed and greatly afraid and stood with all of their friends in the line. They, like ourselves, were not their own champions. No, they required a champion to fight for them. They required a champion to fight on their behalf. They cowered in the background. They melted in fear. And guess what? That champion came. The Lord Jesus Christ has defeated the uncircumcised Philistine that is sin and its consequent eternal death and torment. The same with, goes with Daniel and his cohorts. They were also carried along and rescued by one like a son of man, the pre-incarnate Jesus, who appeared to aid and to comfort and to save them at almost every point in the story when things got too hot. You and I wouldn't have been Daniel. On our own strength, we can't be Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, or Abednego. We would have been one of the numerous Israelites who go unrecorded in the story because we were bowing down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, fearing for our own lives. We wouldn't have been Moses, Joshua, or Caleb, but instead we would have been the Israelite with stone in hand ready to kill Moses, Joshua, or Caleb. And women, you would have plucked the fruit from the tree, and men, you would have taken it from her hand and eaten it. And worst of all, had we been in Pilate's hall on the day of Christ's crucifixion, we would have shouted along with the crowds, crucify, crucify. And when Pilate offered to release Jesus or Barabbas, we would have drowned the hall with howls for Barabbas to be set free. We sing these very things. The writers of old hymns and the writers of new speak this truth. How deep the Father's love for us. You know the line. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And in Horatius Bonner's old hymn, I see the crowd in Pilate's hall, he wrote this, and listen, I see the crowds in Pilate's hall, their shouts of crucify appall. Their curses fill my ear, and of the shouting multitude I feel that I am one. And in the din of voices rude I recognize my own. I see the scourges rend the flesh of God's beloved Son, and as they smite I feel afresh that I of them am one. Around the cross the throng I see that mock the sufferers groan, yet still my voice it seems to be as if I mocked alone. "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood. "'I nailed him to the tree. "'I crucified the Christ of God. "'I joined the mockery. "'Yet not the less that blood prevails "'to cleanse me from sin. "'Yet not the less that cross prevails "'to give me peace within.'" See the way the old writers spoke of our ability apart from Jesus. This is why the scribes and Pharisees' sense of self-importance, their portrayal of themselves as so much better than others because they happened to perform a number of external acts because they thought that if they were put in the same situation as their fathers, they would have responded differently, is such a foolish idea to maintain. 
This is why our sense of self-importance, our sense of being holier and better and more worthy than somebody else is so foolish. Because listen, you and I, all of us, whether I'm up here talking to you, whether you're down there listening, whether you're an elder in OCB, whether you're an average congregant not doing anything, whoever you are, apart from Jesus, you are nothing. I am nothing. We are nothing. We can do nothing. We aren't righteous. We don't understand. We don't do good. We are, we are worthless, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. We do nothing good. We think nothing good. And even the very best of our deeds are as nothing before the Lord because they do not proceed from faith. As Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith it is, it is impossible to please the Lord. And again in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. As we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we can become, we do become just like these scribes and Pharisees. But if you are saved by grace through faith in Christ this morning, there is a major difference. There is a major difference between you and the scribe and the Pharisee. See, the scribes and the Pharisees refused to acknowledge their weakness and frailty. They contented themselves in lies and deception as to their state before the Lord. While they didn't admit their enslavement to bondage and sin and corruption, those while they didn't admit their enslavement to bondage. Those who love Christ, though, unlike the Pharisee, will admit, will recognize, will hand over all to Christ. Because we know it all to be true. Do you know it to be true? Do you sense the depravity of your heart? Do you sense the vice that you are so easily attracted to? the iniquity that calls your name, the immorality that beckons you. You see it all and feel it all in your own heart. And the one who loves Jesus understands that to be true and cries out to him. You cry out to him and say, Be my champion! Cut off the head of this Goliath that persistently threatens my soul and strikes fear into my heart. And as we hand it over to Christ, Christ does this amazingly wonderful thing. He sends His Holy Spirit to live in us, the very Holy Spirit who aids us with His divine power and strength. By the Spirit's indwelling, we now have access to the strength that we need to resist the devil, to wage war against the flesh, and to walk in step with the Spirit. By the Spirit's work in us, we can produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We can confess Christ in the midst of a hostile world, all of which we couldn't, which we can't, which we won't do without the aid of the Spirit. If you trust in Christ this morning, you were once a Pharisee. I was once a Pharisee who thought so highly of myself in my natural strength, but was un unable to see just how weak and just how corrupt and just how powerless I was. But see the long-suffering patience of the Lord for all who dwell in that situation. Verse 32, the Lord Jesus said, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Fill it up, make it full, bring it to its overflowing measure to the point that it brings upon you the judgment of the Lord. 
You see, the judgment of the Lord will arrive upon a person or arrive upon a people when the measure of their sin is filled up. That's what Jesus is saying here. An example of this is found for when the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15 of Genesis. We read this. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward you shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. When I read that, I think to myself, well, why would Abraham's offspring get the land and not Abram himself? Why not command, if the Lord is going with Abram, why not command the conquest of Canaan at this very moment? The answer is because the Lord is patient and the sins of the people in the land of Canaan at this moment have not yet reached their full measure. The Lord declared this to be the case in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. He said, They, your offspring, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, when the Lord sent the Israelites into the land to conquer it, the Lord deemed the sins of the Amorites and the Canaanites to be filled up. And at that moment, they were worthy of devotion to destruction. And this is a picture of the same for us today. All of these judgments of the Lord, are, they pale in comparison to the coming judgment of the Lord. As we read through the Apostle Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Meaning, the Lord's patience and kindness toward this sinful and wicked world is meant to lead sinners to repentance. However, there is coming a day, a day greater than that of Israel's conquest of Canaan, when the measure of the world's sin will be full. And the Lord will return with devastating judgments poured out upon the wicked and rebellious in a far more terrible manner than that what was poured out on the Amorites. And how are we to escape how could the scribes and Pharisees standing before Jesus escape? By listening to, by heeding and believing the message of the prophets. By turning to Jesus in faith. And Jesus would send to them after his ascension and after the empowerment of the believers by the Holy Spirit, he would send to them messengers after that. How are you to escape? See the way Jesus frames the question. He's indicating to the scribes and Pharisees before them that there is no escape for you. You are so busy filling up the measure of your father's sins. He in essence tells them, keep on doing what you're doing. You are going to prove me right. That you are just as evil as your ancestors and you would have happily joined with them in the killing of the prophets. The very people whose tombs you decorate and build, you would have murdered. Because they would have pointed their finger in your chest and you would have revealed your murderous rage and your hardened hearts. 
And so Jesus tells them there's going to be even more opportunity for this to be revealed in you when, in verse 34, he says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So here Jesus told them, I'm going to send numerous messages, messengers to you and you won't listen to them, but you'll do the very thing to them that you said you wouldn't do to the prophets that came before. You will kill them, you will crucify them, and all you need to do is read the book of Acts and you see them doing that very thing. So why did Jesus send to them such a variety of prophets and messengers after his ascension? This question, this answer might make some of us uncomfortable, but look at the answer. It's to fill up the measure of their sins, or as he says in verse 35, so that, see that little connector there? So that on you, meaning on this generation of scribes and Pharisees, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So that on you, on this generation of scribes and Pharisees, will come the Lord's divine retribution and judgment for all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of Abel, Abel being the first righteous man killed in Scripture, whose blood cries out from the ground for vengeance, to the blood of Zechariah. There's an A to Z type of connection to be made here because in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament, meaning Zechariah would be the final righteous man put to death according to the Jewish orderings of the book. And Zechariah also, when he was dying, between the sanctuary and the altar, cried out, may the Lord see and avenge. The first and the last of the righteous blood shed on earth and all the blood of righteous men shed in between that, all of their blood cries out for vengeance and that vengeance will fall upon this generation of scribes and Pharisees. Jesus speaks to them very much the same manner that the chronicler speaks of the generation that was headed into exile. Listen. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. We will explore in the next couple of weeks the how and the what and the when of this wrath and this judgment. But for now, the example of the scribes and Pharisees in many ways is the Lord's megaphone that cries out to you to repent and believe the gospel, to leave off the high and proud and lofty thoughts of self and instead humble yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ who is our champion. And as you do, you and I will be blessed with tests of faith Tests that prove either the genuineness of your faith, which is worth more than pure gold, or it will reveal to you a dark, unrenewed, unsaved soul. Has your faith been tried and tested? When the faith of the Pharisees was tried and tested, it was revealed for what it is. When the faith of Job was tested, it was revealed as more precious than gold. Which one of these are you? Is your faith tried and tested? Is it genuine? Are you being tried and tested right now in your life? 
difficult time financially, difficult marriage, difficult friendships, difficult season of life? If so, what are you learning in this testing about yourself and your faith and your Lord? I pray, in closing, that each and every one of us, when we and as we find ourselves in seasons of testing, in seasons of rebuke and exhortation, when a prophetic voice comes and exposes you and lays you bare because they love you and want to call you to return to the Lord, I pray that those moments would be used by our precious Lord Jesus Christ, by our compassionate, excellent, and awe-inspiring God to bring you ever closer to Him. Avoid responding like the scribes and Pharisees. In proud, self-righteous anger, in malice and murderous rage, but instead trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may your faith be tested and proven and shown to be precious gold. Father, we praise you and we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ's condemnations of the scribes and Pharisees in his day. We can read a text of Scripture like this and think that it's a little bit harsh, but Lord, we know that the situation is serious. We are talking about our eternal souls here. We are talking about the fact that part of us that will go on to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in one of two places, either with you in the joy of your halls in the eternal mansions of glory or under your wrath because we did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I thank you for giving us startling words, clear words, direct words, words that put the finger in our chests, and I praise you that you call us to salvation I praise you for putting the, the message of the gospel out to everyone and calling everyone to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And I pray that this morning, everyone here who is saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give them a sense of peace and comfort because you have done everything. You have performed the works necessary for their salvation and they can be confident in the fact that they will be with you in heaven forever. But for those who have not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, I pray that you would rattle them, make them uncomfortable. May your spirit be convicting them of their sin right now. We don't want to be the church that is comfortable for sinners. We want it to be the place that rattles sinners into salvation. Because we know how great Jesus is, and we want them to know also. And we pray this in his name. Amen.